This morning I invite you to take your Bible and turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Mark chapter 2, I'll begin reading at verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there, that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, he took his mat And he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Heavenly Father, we bow before you and we pray that you will show up and show off in such a way so that when we walk out of here, we will say one to the other, we have never seen anything like this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The backdrop for our story is a Capernaum home. Capernaum was located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. In those days, it was known for fishing and farming and a strong Roman military outpost. By this time, the ministry of Jesus was growing exponentially. Whenever you have a religious crowd, there's always at least two types of people in that crowd. In Mark chapter 2, these two types of people were in this crowd. Undoubtedly, there are some people in the crowd that are just curious about Christ. By now, he had distinguished himself as a miracle worker. He had cast out demons. He had healed numerous people from various diseases. He had even done the impossible, and he healed a man from leprosy. There were some people in that crowd that day that had gathered just out of curiosity to wonder, what is Jesus going to do next? What's he going to say next? What's he going to do? Because he does extraordinary things. And certainly on this day, it's not going to be any different. He's going to do something extraordinary. And on this day, in this religious crowd, there were people that were curious, crazy for Christ. But not everybody is a fan of Jesus. Never has been, never will be. 
In Mark chapter 2, there are some people in that crowd that are critical of Jesus Christ. Mark identifies them as the teachers of the law. In Luke's version of the very same story, he identifies them as Pharisees and teachers of the law. Now, just to be accurate, those are two different groups. The Pharisees and then the teachers of the law. The Pharisees were a group of conservative religious Jewish men. They were formed about 400 years before our story. I always find that ironic because some of you realize that the last prophet to speak for the Lord was a man by the name of Malachi. And Malachi lived 400 years before the coming of Christ. And after Malachi stood up and said, thus saith the Lord, God imposed a gag order upon himself. He didn't speak again until he raised up John the Baptist. There were 400 years of silence and people don't appreciate silence. They don't know what to do with silence. And so ironically, the Pharisees were founded in that void of silence. Where there was no voice, they spoke. And the Pharisees came along, and, and just to be honest with you, um, the Pharisees weren't all bad. I mean, there were some things that were good about the Pharisees. I've already said they were conservative. They believed in God. They affirmed the reality of angels. They believed in the bodily resurrection of the dead, and they wholeheartedly believed in the sovereignty of God. Now, those are their high marks. But the Pharisees also had some low marks as well. Wherever God was gray or silent when it came to the Mosaic law, the Pharisees wanted to speak for God. They wanted to answer anybody's questions. For example, the Lord said uh, we were to honor the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. For six days, God labored, but on the seventh day, he rested. And so people ask the question, what does it mean to rest and what does it mean to work? And it seemed that the Mosaic law didn't quite answer that. So the Pharisees stepped up and they identified 39 classes of work that were legal to do on the Sabbath. They even went so far as to say, this is the number of steps you can take on the Sabbath and not be breaking the law of Moses. Now, how they got that, I have no idea. I don't know how they came up with those classes of work, and I don't know how they registered the appropriate number of steps, but they did it, and their interpretation, their application of the Mosaic law was cumbersome and burdensome. And they passed it on to the next generation. They were passionate about obedience to God. They were passionate about their interpretation of obedience to God. And let's be honest, all of us have a little Pharisee living inside of us, don't we? We all have a little bit of that uh, desire for people to walk like us, talk like us, act like us, and do what we want them to do, and, and, and to pass on our interpretation of what God says and what God means, even in the places where God seems to be a little bit silent. So the Pharisees were in the crowd that day. Also the teachers of the law. Elsewhere in Scripture, they're called the scribes. The scribes are the teachers of the law. They were the... Um, Theological lawyers. 
They were the ones who codified the interpretation of the Pharisees. So the Pharisees and the scribes are always in cahoots. Wherever you see one, you always see the other. Because whatever the Pharisees said, the scribes would write it down and codify it and make it legal. And they would pass that on from one generation to the next. Now the Pharisees and the scribes, they did not like Jesus. Because Jesus did not adhere to their interpretation of the Mosaic law. And frequently, Jesus and these Pharisees and scribes would butt heads. In Mark chapter 2, they're in the crowd. They're there with a critical demeanor, with a hawk eye view of Jesus. They are watching everything he does, listening carefully to dissect everything he says. Both Mark and Luke tell us that on this day, there was a large crowd. It was a crushing crowd. They were in this Capernaum home They were hanging out the window. They were even outside the front door. They were probably even wrapped around the house just to be an earshot of Jesus in the hopes they would hear something that he said or maybe be able to see something that he did. This place is packed. Have you ever been in a crushing crowd? You've been in a place where there are so many people in a small geographical area that it's it's crushing, almost suffocating, that it seems as if the air that you're supposed to breathe was taken up by the person on your left or on your right because they just gasped and they just sucked in a bunch of air. The air that you should have had, it's almost suffocating. You ever been in a crushing crowd of people? I have. A few years ago, we took the family to Disney World and we thought it'd be a great idea on the 4th of July to watch the fireworks in Magic Kingdom. Okay, that is not a great idea to take your family on the 4th of July to Magic Kingdom and Disney World. I have never seen this volume of people packed in such a geographical area. We thought we'd be smart and we would go more to the front of the park and be on the second level of the train station where you can overlook uh, Magic Kingdom and Main Street and see the castle that's right in front of you. We thought that'd be a great idea, but so did 54,738 other people who tried to cram on an area no bigger than this stage. And I'm talking about crushing. I'm talking about shoulder to shoulder. To the right of me was my sweet wife, Jane Ellen and Nathan, and then I was holding Molly Grace. To the left of me was a rather large, obese Hispanic man, and we'll just call him Carlos. And Carlos was there, and and he was wearing a muscle shirt, which is really uh, false publicity, uh, because (laughs) he didn't have very many muscles at all. There may have been a day when he had some muscles, but now it was just a gentle flab. And so he was there, uh, and he was wearing the shirt, or the shirt was wearing him. It wasn't that much of a shirt at all, actually, as I think about it. And I'm standing there next to Carlos. I'm really pressed up against him. And Carlos is not just a large man, but he is a sweaty large man. And not just a sweaty large man, but a hairy, sweaty large man. I mean, Carlos has hair everywhere. And so I'm standing there and I'm telling you, I mean, even to this day, I can still smell and taste the Axe body spray that was on his body. Because, I mean, it was pressed up against me to the point that if I turn left, there's Carlos. Hey, buddy, can you scoot over just a bit? It was a crushing crowd. You ever been in a crushing crowd? That's the portrait of Mark chapter 2. The crowd is crushing, pressing in. 
to see what Jesus is going to do next and to hear what he has to say. It is Luke who tells us that in his version of the story that the power of the Lord was upon Jesus. Now don't misinterpret that phrase. For him to say the power of the Lord was upon Jesus does not mean that this is the first time that the power of the Lord had been on Jesus. It also does not mean that the power of the Lord was here today, but it may be gone tomorrow. No, what Luke is doing in his version of the story is he's comparing and contrasting the power of the Lord versus the power of the Pharisees. Because the the power of the Pharisees is limited. The power of the Lord is unlimited. The scribes and Pharisees, they have some insight, but Jesus has all insight. The scribes and Pharisees have some teaching, but Jesus has all teaching. The scribes and Pharisees have some power, but Jesus has all power. And in Luke's version of the story, all that power that rested on Jesus enabled him to heal the sick. And in Mark's version, While he doesn't say it, he does imply it, that the power of the Lord was there and the power of the Lord was on Jesus in Mark chapter two to preach the word to them. The same power that Jesus used to heal the sick was the same power that Jesus used to say, thus saith the Lord. The same power that Jesus used to one day raise Lazarus from the dead is the same power that Jesus uses when he stands and proclaims the preaching word of God. Jesus was in the house that day. He didn't have some power. He had all power. He had the same power that flung the stars into space. He had the same power that said, let there be light. And light came running at 186. 6,000 miles per second. He had the same power that rescued the Israelites from their Egyptian captivity. He had the same power that, that strengthened David to defeat Goliath. He had the same power that preserved Jonah in the belly of the fish. He had the same power that protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. He had the same power that raised the widow's son in Zarephath. Jesus had all power in the house that day. It was the power of the Lord that was resting upon him so he could heal and so he could speak the very word of God. I came this morning to tell you, church, that Jesus, who had all power in Mark chapter 2 in that house, is the same Jesus that has all power in this house this morning. The power of the Lord was upon Jesus, and in Mark's version of the story, Jesus was preaching the word of God. Apparently, there was a paralytic who believed that Jesus had the power to heal him. We're not told much about this paralytic. We don't know his name. We don't know his age. We don't know anything about his family history. We just know something about his condition. He was paralyzed. The word that is translated paralytic is a word that means weakened or disabled. It's a word that can describe a scenario of experiencing a trauma behind the knees, leaving a person lame. Maybe that's this man's story. Sometimes in the Bible, it describes a paralytic as one who is lame from his mother's womb. That's not how this man's described. He's just described as a paralytic, one who's weakened, one who's disabled, perhaps one who had experienced a tragedy in life, a trauma that left him unable to walk. Maybe there was a day in this man's life when he could run and jump with the best of them. Maybe there was a time when this man was extremely independent and very successful. 
Maybe there was a time when this man could go wherever he wanted to go and pretty much do whatever he wanted to do. But he experienced a sadness. He experienced a setback. He experienced something terrible, a trauma in his life. Something happened that left him immobilized. Something happened that left him incapacitated to get up on his own two feet and put one foot in front of the other. And for however long that's been, he has been assigned to a mat. We don't know much about this man, but we do know something about his condition. And we also know he's a likable guy. He has four friends. That's more than some of us have, right? I mean, this guy had four friends. And these four friends were dedicated. They were devoted individuals. He must have said to them, hey, if you get me to Jesus, I think Jesus can help me. If you just get me to Jesus, I think that that Jesus may be able to heal me. And the four friends said, we'll do it. And we won't let anything stand in our way. So they brought him to the house. They knew which house it was. It was a house that had all the people crammed into it. It was a crushing crowd, remember? They walk up to the front door. There's no way they can get in. The crowd is pressing their way out the door and around the house. I suppose at that moment they could have said, well, we gave her the old college try. You know, we did our best. We brought you all the way over to this house. We can't get in. There's no way. I mean, nobody's going nobody's gonna to park the scene and allow us to get in. So, buddy, we're sorry. No, they didn't do that. They said, we are so determined and we're so prepared to get you to the feet of Jesus that they hoisted the mat on their shoulders and they maneuvered up the outside staircase and stood on the flat rooftop. In these days, it was customary for homes to be a one-story structure. And outside that house, it was normal for there to be a staircase that would go up to a very flat roof. This is where the guys take their paralytic friend. They go up on top of that roof. And these guys are so determined. They are so prepared. Apparently, they brought a shovel with them. Apparently, they brought a saw with them. It is Luke who says that they had to remove the roof tiles and they lowered their friend to Jesus. It is Mark who says that they dug through the roof and in essence, they plopped him right there at the feet of Christ. Now, because there is a discrepancy in Luke's story and Mark's story, it's called some individuals to say, see, the Bible's not inerrant. There are errors in the scripture because you just clearly said in Luke they had to remove the tiles from the roof and Mark says they had to dig through the roof. Now, which one is it? They both can't be right. My friend, that's not an example of a biblical error. That's an example of human ignorance because a roof in the first century was made out of pretty much uh, three things. One, there were cross beams. The second was muddy thatch. And then on top of that muddy thatch would have been roofing tiles. So Luke is right and Mark is right. They just tell you a different part of the story. Because at first when they get up there, they first have to remove the roofing tiles. And then once they remove the roofing tiles and the muddy thatch is beneath them, then they're able to saw or shovel or dig their way through that thatch in order to create an opening between the cross beams so they can lower their buddy who was a A paralytic on a mat. At this point, let me just push the pause button just for a second. Can I? When you stop and look at these friends, I don't know about you, but I marvel at their determination. And I marvel 
at their preparedness. They were ready to do whatever was needed to get their friend to Jesus. Which when I read that, it begs the question, who in your life needs to get to Jesus? And what are you doing to get that person there? Who in your life desperately needs to get to Jesus? And what are you doing to plop them at the feet of Christ? Oftentimes we ask the questions, what, where, who? Because we know that we exist to make disciples for a global impact. And a disciple is a lifelong believing learner of Christ. Therefore, what are you learning? And where are you taking the gospel? And who are you trying to reach? So what's your what? Where's your where? And who's your who? What is your what? What is Christ teaching you? And where are you taking the gospel? It could be New York City. It could be Peru. It could be Asia. It could be across the street. It doesn't matter where, just so long as you're taking the gospel intentionally somewhere. Who? Who are you trying to reach? And we've said before on numerous occasions that if some specific person does not come to mind in less than three seconds, then you're not being intentional enough. So who in your life needs Jesus? And what are you doing to plop them at the feet of Christ. These four friends, they said, listen, we're not going to let anything stand our way. We're not going to let roofing tiles. We're not going to let muddy thatch. We're not going to let a large crowd. We're not going to let a closed door. We're going to keep on keeping on until we persistently plop our friend at the feet of Christ. Who in your life needs Jesus? And what are you doing to get them there? Can you imagine that as they opened up the roof and they lowered their friend. Can you imagine the scene? We're told that Jesus was preaching. Uh, what's he preaching, you ask? Well, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 38, Jesus preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. It seems that that's all that he preached. That was the big takeaway of all of his sermons. In fact, earlier in Mark chapter 1, it is Peter who said, you know, Jesus, we had such a great day here yesterday. Let's go back at it today. And Jesus said, nope, we got to go to a neighboring village because they need to hear the gospel too. For I came to preach repentance unto salvation. So every time Jesus preached, the punchline was always the same. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. I don't know at what point Jesus was in the sermon. Maybe he was just setting the table at the introduction. Maybe he was in the body of the sermon, moving from one point to another point to a third point. Maybe he was about to land the plane. Maybe he was about to bring it home. Maybe he's about to offer the invitation. Maybe just as I am, it's playing in the background. Maybe something spectacular is about to happen. And all of a sudden, muddy thatch from the ceiling begins to fall. Now, all of us have spiritual ADD. All of us do. Every crowd, every religious crowd has spiritual ADD. All it takes is a teenager getting up and going to the bathroom. And half of you go, whoo, what's he doing? Or a baby to cry or somebody to call for snorts. It doesn't matter really what it is. It causes us to get distracted. Because spiritually, we go like, squirrel, squirrel, there's squirrel, right? And we're just all over the place. Can you imagine if all of a sudden you felt and heard muddy thatch and debris falling from the ceiling. In this story, nobody ever talks about the homeowner. I mean, this man is pious and proud. Jesus is at his house, right? Jesus is at my house. He could have gone to any Capernaum home. He's going to my home. I'm so glad that Jesus is at my house. 
there are four quacks on my ceiling. And they're cutting a hole through my roof. What are they doing? And those guys are not quiet. They're like, left, right, left, right. Need a hole over here, a little bit bigger over here. You didn't quite get through over there, right? I mean, they're loud. There are four rednecks who came to bring their friend and plop in front of Jesus. They're being loud. It's disrupting the entire sermon. And all of a sudden, he finally rests on the floor. And Jesus says in verse 5 that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, friend, your sins are forgiven. I got to be honest, that statement has wrecked me before. The reason it's confusing to me is because at first read, it sounds like what Jesus is saying, what Mark is saying is that when Jesus saw the faith of those four friends, he then turned to that one paralytic and said, friend, your sins are forgiven. You may sit there and say, yeah, that's right. That's how I read it. What's the problem? The problem is nowhere in the Bible does the Bible affirm borrowed faith. Nowhere in the Bible does the gospel affirm a borrowed faith where somehow God sees the faith of your friends and then applies to you forgiveness. Let me tell you, friend, your faith has to be personal. Your faith has to be real. It has to be personal. You are not going to heaven because your daddy's a deacon. You are not going to be forgiven of sin because your mom and dad are stellar saints. You are not going to heaven when you die simply because you dated a Christian girlfriend. You are not going to heaven because of the faith of somebody else. You don't get in on the coattails of anybody. The gospel never affirms a borrowed faith. The gospel only affirms a personal faith in the accomplished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when I get to verse 5 and I read it, that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to that guy, your sins are forgiven that wrecks me until it finally dawned on me when Mark says that Jesus saw their faith the there must include not just the four of them but the five of them Jesus saw their faith the paralytic had just as much faith as those four friends and when Jesus recognized the faith that was not only residing within the paralytic, but also that faith that resided in those four friends, he turns to the paralytic and he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. His sins were forgiven not because of the faith of his friends. His sins were forgiven because of his faith that was squarely placed upon the shoulders of Jesus. And Jesus says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Those critical people in the crowd, those Pharisees and scribes, they begin to think to themselves, who is this? Why is he talking like this? He's a blasphemer. Only God can forgive sins. Now, they clearly heard what he said. They knew what was going on. And they have uh, one accurate statement. Only God can forgive sins. That's true. That's accurate. That's right. Only God can forgive sins. Where their thinking was false is that they thought that Jesus was a liar instead of the Lord. They thought he was a fake and a phony. They, they thought Jesus was a hoax instead of the Holy One. Because what they should have concluded is that only God can forgive sins. And if Jesus has says this man's sins are now forgiven, that must mean that Jesus is God in the flesh. But instead, they said he's a blasphemer. He cannot do that. Only God can do that. And Jesus can read their minds. 
He says, why do you think this? Let me ask you, which is easier to say this paralytic, your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk? Which statement is easier to say? Well, one of them demands immediate verification. The other statement doesn't necessarily demand immediate verification. Which statement demands immediate verification? Take up your mat and walk. The proof is in the pudding, right? I mean, if that cat actually gets up, takes up his mat and walks, then woo-hoo, Jesus is legit. He has the authority and the power to forgive sins and to heal this man. So, so the one that demands immediate verification is take up your mat and walk. But somebody could say your sins are forgiven. And what's the immediate verification of that? Well, it's long-term, but immediately there, there's not much change. I acknowledge that if you come today and your sins are forgiven, you may walk out and you may have a tear in your eye or tears streaming down your face. You may be able to have a smile on your face, but let me tell you this much. If you uh, come to Jesus and you're 6'1 and brown hair and brown eyes, after you get forgiven, you're still 6'1 brown hair and brown eyes. For you to receive forgiveness... That's not going to change your hair color or your waist size. It's not going to cause you to grow a mustache and you're not going to grow six inches just because you come and meet Christ, right? I mean, you come and get forgiveness of your sins. You're going to walk out and initially you're going to look the same. Now the proof is in the pudding there too because then you will bear the fruit of forgiveness and it'll be obvious in the long-term effect. But initially you can say your sins are forgiven all day long and it doesn't change your outward visible expression. But you say to a paralytic, get up and walk. There's tension in the room, right? Is he going to get up? What's he going to do? What's going to happen? And Mark says immediately, this man jumped to his feet and he picked up his mat and he walked out. Now, what does Jesus do? Jesus combines his power and his authority He has the power to heal this man and he has the authority to forgive sins. Nobody else has that power and that authority. Jesus has the power to heal a paralytic and he has the authority to forgive his sins and authority that the forgiveness of sins is full and free and forever. And this man jumped to his feet and he walked out and he rejoiced, not just because he could walk, but now because he could worship he, he rejoiced because not just he was skipping, but he was saved. He rejoiced not just because he could move, but now he personally knew the Messiah. This individual jumped to his feet and he rejoiced because he knew that something spectacular had happened. He had been healed from the inside out. It wasn't just the healing of his legs. It was the healing of his heart. And only Jesus could do this. In fact, as he jumped up and walked out, the people rejoiced and they said, We ain't never seen anything like this before. We have never seen anything like this before. What is the this that they're talking about? What have they never seen before? Have they never seen a paralytic get healed? No, they've probably seen that before. What is the this that they've never seen before? We've never seen this before. What is the this? They've never seen anyone who has both power and authority, power to heal and authority to forgive. 
They've never seen this before. Up until now, Jesus has been a miracle worker. In chapter one, he miraculously healed people from various diseases. He miraculously exercised the demons. He miraculously healed the man with leprosy. But here, starting in Mark chapter two, he puts healing of the body with healing of the soul. And Jesus is the only one who has power and authority, power to heal and authority to forgive sins. It's one thing to have power with no authority. It'd be another thing to have authority with no power, but Jesus has both power and authority. Jesus has the power and authority to heal a broken body. Jesus has power and authority to forgive you of sin. Jesus has power and authority to mend your marriage. Jesus has power and authority to rescue the prodigal son or the prodigal granddaughter. Jesus has the power to break the addictive pattern of sin in your life. Jesus has the power to remove fear of the future. Jesus has the power and the authority to heal the the one that is helpless. Jesus has the power and authority to give hope to the hopeless. Jesus has power and authority to make a way when there's no way. Jesus has all power and all authority. Friend, if you come in here today broken, if you come in here today with sin, if you come in here today with an addictive behavior, if you come in today with a problem, if you come in today with a predicament, I want you to know that the Jesus that was in the house of Mark chapter 2 is the same Jesus in this house and that Jesus in Mark chapter 2 said, I have all power and authority and this Jesus today says to you and says to me, here in this moment, on this day, I have all power and all authority authority. So Jesus wants to say to you, get up and walk out fully forgiven. Get up and walk out fully forgiven. We've never seen anything like this before. There's no other religious leader that has that much power and that much authority. Who is this? This is Jesus. What Jesus are we talking about? The one who's Christ, son of God. He has all power and all authority. So this Jesus says to you today, my friend, whatever problem, whatever wound, whatever rebellion, whatever sickness, whatever sadness you have in this house, Jesus says to you, I want to touch you and heal you and change you. And I want you to get up and walk out fully forgiven. Only Jesus can do that. The crowd said, we've never seen anything like this before. One who has such power and such authority. Don't miss the moment. Don't walk out with your same sickness and your same habits and your same issues because Jesus is in this house and Jesus is here with all power and all authority. Heavenly Father, help us this day to jump to our feet, to walk out fully forgiven. Father, we pray that you'll help us not to bypass this glorious moment of invitation. Help us to find the forgiveness that we need. Help us to find the help and the encouragement that we need. Help us to find the correction that we need to live full and free and forever forgiven in your sight. 
Oh, Father, we give you this moment. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.